All right, let's open up the Bible. Um, two. We have two passages today. And Pastor Paul's going to close off our Christmas tree sermon series. To 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 to 5. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 to 5. And I'll read this for us. And as a, just a reminder that as we read this, this is the Word of God. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. There's a second passage. We're going to go to the New Testament in Matthew. Just one verse, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King the David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Um, and hello, uh, welcome to Kingsway. Uh, can we turn around? I know we did this and say happy Boxing Day to the people around us. Is that a thing? Do you say that? I don't know. All right. Um, as Peter mentioned, uh, we've been going through a series. Uh, this is a five-week series. This is the last week called The Christmas Tree. And um, it's kind of like a play on words. Uh, we're looking at the tree of Christ, like the family tree of Christ, as found in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, there's like a lineage that leads up to Jesus. And in that family tree, there are five women. We've looked at the four, and now we're looking at the last one. And so some of the people we've looked at, it's like T Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Mary. I think that's all of them. And today we're looking at Bathsheba. Right, there's a rom-com movie that um, I really like. If you haven't seen it, maybe you can watch it. It's a bit old. It's called Hitch. Anyone seen, anyone seen Hitch? Okay, okay. <laughs> no. All right. In the movie, there's this scene where I find really funny, where Will Smith, he's like this expert love coach. So he teaches people, you know, how to, you know, ask people out on dates and stuff like that. And he's taking a girl out on a date, right? She's uh, played by Ava Mendes, right? And it's super romantic. It's the first time they're going on a date, and he takes a jet skiing. And they end up on this place called Ellis Island. Now, Ellis Island is a place that's kind of right where the Statue of Liberty is right now. And it's a museum where people can go in and they learn about um, immigration um, and how it works. And that's because way back in the past, about you know, the early 1900s, uh, this was an immigration station. Right? It was a place where people would pass through in their hopes to immigrate to America right, and stay there. And it was actually the busiest immigration station in all of America. 
Over 100 million Americans uh, can trace their lineage back to that place, right? A great-great-grandparent had passed through that place to come to America and settled, and that's why they and their parents and their aunts and uncles and cousins are living in America, right? So it's a significant place. So he takes her on this date to Ellis Island, and he's pulled some strings to get a private tour. So they're there by themselves, walking along, you know, romantic music's in the background, and, you know, they end up in this room where right in the middle is a really old book, right? It's covered with a glass. And as they approach this book, Will Smith says, you can't really know where you're going until you know where you've been. Right? You can't know where you're going until you know where you've been. And she's like, oh, that's a bit deep for a first date. And he's like, mm -hmm. and he kind of indicates to the book. And she looks at the book, and she realizes it's a list of immigrants, right? Their names and their signatures, people who've passed through. And she scans the names, and then she finds the name of a great-great-grandfather, right? There on the book, right? And he'd set it all up, right? Because it's this, you know, expert dating guy. And she's like, oh, it's a great-great-grandfather. Is this how she came to immigrate here? And she, she's shocked. She covers her mouth, um, and Will Smith is proud, he's smiling, he gives that private tour guy like a knowing nod, and he's like, he's so proud of himself, right? He's done so well. Uh, Ava Mendes, she starts to cry, right? The romantic music gets really loud. And then suddenly, she goes, but she does this really kind of weird, you have to watch it, right? She does this weird, angry, like, sound, and he's like, whoa, and she goes, again, and she runs off, right? And he's like, that's not how I expected it to happen. And we find out the reason why she responds that way. Her great-grandfather, her great-great-grandfather, right, the guy who immigrated here, was actually a serial killer. Right? And Will Smith is like, you know, I googled him, and when I saw on the computer, it said, the butcher of Cadiz. And I thought that was a profession, butcher, not a headline, right? Do you get it, the butcher? Okay, okay. And that, that's how it ends, right? This date uh, goes horribly wrong because, you know, her great-great-grandfather, someone she'd want to forget, right, in her lineage, ended up being a serial killer. Now, you know, we're looking at Matthew 1. We've looked at Matthew 1, and it's like that book to me. It's a book where if you open it up in Matthew 1, it's a list of people that make up the family tree of Jesus. And on that list, there are people that, you know, we'd like to forget. People with some checkered past, with a shameful history, uh, people that maybe Jesus would like people to never have been mentioned again. Right? Out of all the people uh, that we've looked at, I think the people that we're seeing today are the most scandalous. Right? We're looking at David and Bathsheba. And their history, their story is kind of really seeped with shame, sin, and scandal. Right? If there ever were a people in that book of people in the family of trees, tree of Jesus that he'd want to forget, I think it might be these people. So we're going to look at the story of Bathsheba today. Now, as we look at Bathsheba, uh, it's difficult to not to talk about David. Right? Her story and David's story is intertwined. And how they met is really the basis of their story. And so today I want to talk about David um, because as we look at David, we're going to learn about Bathsheba. Right? If this was a song, it would be David featuring Bathsheba. Right? It's like she, she stars in this, she sings a verse, but we're going to look at David. He's the main guy, obviously, because he's a key figure in the Old Testament. Now, this is a story some of you may know. David is this exemplar king. 
Right? He's chosen by God, um, and he's really the model of what it looks like to be a leader, a man, a husband, a godly person. Right? That's who David's meant to be. But we find in 2 Samuel chapter 11, things go wrong. Now in verse 1, I want to just summarize what we see in chapter 11. In verse 1, it says David should have been out at war with the rest of his troops, but he's not. Right? He's doing what a king isn't meant to do. A king's meant to go out and be with his people, but he sends off his troops and he's complacent at home. In verse 2, we read, or we read that um, he's alone, he has spare time, right, which are bad combinations to have, alone and spare time. Whether you're single, you're alone at home with spare time, or you're dating, you're alone together and you've got spare time, bad combination. He's alone, he's got spare time, he's on his roof. And he says he sees a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, right? Enter Bathsheba. And she's bathing. She's bathing to purify herself. And up to this point, David hasn't done anything wrong. Right? He's seen a beautiful woman bathing. But what he does from now is a series of mistakes. Verse 3, we read that he inquires about Bathsheba. He should have just let it go, but he asks around, wait, who's that beautiful woman? And he finds out it's Bathsheba, and he also knows that she is married. But verse 4, he does another mistake. He then sends messengers to go grab her. Right, go bring her. I just want to have a chat. Just bring her to my room. We're just going to sit down and play some chess. I don't know what, what he planned. He brings her over. And then verse 4, he brings her and he sleeps with her. Right, he's committed adultery. Verse 5, she becomes pregnant and she lets him know. Right, These are all a series of bad things leading to bad things. But in verse 6 to 11, what he doesn't do is come clean. In an attempt to cover over his sin, he sins even more. And he calls Uriah back from the battlefield in the hope that as he comes back home, he might go to his house, right, be with his wife. They might sleep, lay together. Right, and he might think eventually that the child that Bathsheba has conceived is his own. But Uriah, he does this. He's such a godly man. He tells David, there's no way I'm going to go back home in the comfort and eat and drink and be with my wife when my fellow you know, men are out in the battlefield sleeping on the floor. How could I do that? And it's such a stinging rebuke because that's exactly what David is doing. David is in the comfort of his home, eating, drinking, laying with someone else's wife while his people are out there. And it's this contrast where Uriah is such a godly man in contrast to David, who should be right, the model of what a godly man looks like. David uh, then goes further in verse 12 to 13. He then gets Uriah drunk, which is a sin, hoping, hoping that that might loosen his convictions. Right? Maybe when you're drunk, you might, you know, you might not you know, keep your word about not going home. But Uriah still refuses to go home. He sleeps on the couch with David's servants. So up to this point, David has committed adultery. He's enticed Uriah to sin, but it gets worse. And you probably know, in verse 14 to 25, David does the unthinkable. He writes a letter to his commander, Joab, and he says, I want you to put Uriah at the front of the army where the battle is worst. And as you go to battle, I want you to pull back so that Uriah will die. And that's exactly what happens. Right, the army goes out, but then they pull back, and Uriah and a bunch of other people as well die. David murders with a bunch of collateral damage. And then in verse 26 to 27, 
But Sheba hears that her husband has died. She laments, and then David takes her as his wife, and then she bears his son. That's chapter 11. This is how David and Bathsheba met. Right, Mom and Dad, how did you meet? Tell us your story. Right, this is their story. It's a story of spectacular sin and scandalous shame. And the magnitude of how bad this story is, at least hard for us to grasp, right? It's just a story. We know David. Oh, he's a good guy. You know, he's a King David. Uh, when you think about his height and how far he fell, I think it helps us to understand just how bad of a story it is. Because again, David was God's king chosen by God. Now, he's the second king of Israel, but really the first one that God likes. The first one that did well. He's a man after God's own heart. Right? That's what God says. And under the leadership of David, Israel has enjoyed prosperity and peace like no one else. Right? Only maybe comparable to his son Solomon. David began as a humble shepherd, Right? But out of nothing, he became this giant slayer, right? killing Goliath, right? that, that great story. People made songs about David, right? singing about how great he is. Not only that, half of the Psalms, our songbook of the Old Testament, is written by David himself. Right? He was a great musician. And people, churches around the world would sing his songs, right? kind of like that. David was meant to be a great man, model king, a man after God's own heart. Arguably, apart from Jesus, the most famous person in the Bible, King David, the highest of heights. And yet, look how far he fell. He didn't just lust, he commits adultery, he entices his people that he's meant to protect, instead he entices them to sin, and then he murders. He breaks at least four of the Ten Commandments in this one chapter, he covers his neighbor wife, neighbor's wife, that's number 10. He commits adultery, that's number 7. He, ought, he lies, that's number 9. And then he murders, that's number 6 of the Ten Commandments. It's truly scandalous. And where's Bathsheba in all of this, right? I said we need to focus on David. But because this is about Bathsheba, where is this? Right? Is, she, is she like engaging in this or is she being dragged along? You know, there's three main theories about Bathsheba. I'm just going to go through them quickly. Uh, one side is that she's a temptress. Right? She's the one who made all this happen. The other side is that she's a victim. And then there's a middle ground. Right? And this is where I would probably land. The temptress argument is that Bathsheba was bathing on the roof on purpose, trying to make King David, David sin. Right? Why are you bathing there at that time so close to the palace? Of course you knew David would walk around, see you, and you're like, oh, look at me, David, because you wanted his attention. Right? That theory just doesn't have biblical backing, right? even though it's quite popular. Um, people tend to say she was on her roof bathing, but the Bible actually doesn't say that she was on her roof. Right? But you actually hear that quite often. David was on his roof. We don't know where Bathsheba was. Bathsheba laments over her husband. Showing genuine care for her husband. It's not like she's cold-hearted and wanted him to die. And when Nathan the prophet in the next chapter comes to rebuke the sin, he rebukes David alone. Right? Because he is the one who instigated the sin. Not Bathsheba, she didn't start this. So she's not a temptress. 
The other side, which is gaining a lot more traction lately, is that Bathsheba was a victim. Right? She was an unwilling participant, really didn't want to participate with any of this. But because David was king and powerful, she was helpless. And she was forced into it. And by this theory, David then doesn't commit adultery, he really commits rape. She wants to refuse, but she can't. Now, I wouldn't go that far. Um, it's completely true that David had power and authority. It's completely true that you know, it's, it's the burden of sin is on him. But there's no evidence, again, in the Bible that she was trying to resist what happened here. Verse 4, people say, it says, David sent messengers and took her. And that sounds like forceful language. He sent guards and he took her. What could she do? But if you read the next words, it says, and she came to him. Which is an interesting thing to insert if you were trying to put all of the blame on David and make her kind of like a victim. It implies a participation, the fact that she came to him. There's at least not a complete resistance in this. Also interesting, in this story, uh, Uriah protests against David. Even though David is powerful and king, when David tells him to go home, when David tells him to do this or that, Uriah disobeys David, and he vocally says no to the powerful king. Right? It shows that even though David is king, when people want to resist, they will resist and they will verbalize it. In the next story as well, I, um, after, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, there is actually a story of uh, what is clearly rape. David's son, Amnon, he rapes his sister, Tamar, right, which is another crazy story. But this prince, Amnon, powerful, right, is trying to um, you know, exert his power and, and strength over his sister. But in that story, um, Tamar ref- refuses and she verbally protests. Right? She says no. Right? It's very clear that she doesn't want to participate in what's happening. And so when you think about the fact that there are people who will vocally you know, refuse, um, but Bathsheba is silent, um, you know, my kind of reading is that if she really wanted to resist, we'd see it in the Bible, right? just like Uriah did, just like Tamar did. The fact that she is silent, I don't think says that she's a voiceless kind of, you know, person that has no words, um, even though she wants to speak up, I think it more proves that you know, she was willing to go along with everything that was going on. Right? So for me, I think she's really in the middle of this. I'm not a temptress, I'm not a complete victim. Definitely there is power that David is wielding that he shouldn't have. As the king, he should have protected his people, not enticed them to sin. Um, And he is the one that Nathan blames because he is the king, he is the man, and he should have led in a godly way. He took advantage of Bathsheba, perhaps. Um, He should have protected her, but didn't. But definitely, um, I think Bathsheba, you know, wasn't resisting. But David didn't force anything on Bathsheba uh, that she didn't want to participate in. At the end of it, it doesn't really matter. What we have that the Bible gives to us is a story of scandal a relationship that is birthed out of sin, and both David and Bathsheba are kind of portrayed in a way that they as a whole have committed wrong. Right? They, in a relationship, uh, is a scandalous relationship. Now, as I end this first point, what's the point? Like, what do we take away? 
I think we can learn something in our heads, right? Take something away in our hearts and do something with our hands, right? And so in the head, what should we know? We should know sin's corruption, right? In our minds, when we look at passages like this, we look at people like David, who was a model Christian in a sense, a model godly person, we should take away in our minds that sin really has corrupted humanity and that there is no one who is exempt from the tainting of sin, right? It's not, it's not uncommon for us today to hear of high-profile people falling and failing, whether it's CEOs, whether it's celebrities, whether it's Christian leaders. They fall, they fail. People who we think should have been better. And the biblical response to that is that we should be completely saddened but not completely surprised. And on one hand, we should be completely saddened every time someone sins, but we shouldn't be completely surprised because this is the broken world we live in. Sin has invaded each of our hearts, including you and me. This is the world, and without Jesus Christ and his help, his strength, his grace, right, we are all prone to fail and fall in some sort of way. And we should read stories like this story of David and say, there but for the grace of God go I. Right there, but for the grace of God go I. Right, that could be me. If it weren't for the grace and the protection of God, because I have sin in my heart as well. But that's what we should know. We should know that sin has corrupted the world. In our hearts, it should lead us to be desperate for Jesus. That should drive us not to kind of give up, but to cling onto Christ. Because we know how broken this world, our friends, and we are. And how tempting every day is. In desperation, we should cry out to him and hold on to him. We need him. We need him as Christians. We need him as a church. Because every person will fail you at a certain point, including myself including our pastors, including our leaders. We're not perfect. And you can't demand from leadership what you should get from Jesus. You can't demand from your husband or wife what you should get from Jesus. Only Jesus alone will never fail you, and so you should cling to him, right, no matter what. And in our hands, we should be vigilant against sin. And knowing that there is temptation around us every day, we should fight with the strength that God gives us. You know, the day before 2 Samuel chapter 11, when David put his head to bed and went, went to sleep, he was not an adulterer that night, and he was not a murderer. But in the span of a day, everything changed. And again, he woke up that next morning, not, he didn't say, you know what I want to do today? I, I want to commit this horrendous sin. That's not what he thought. But he made a lot of small mistakes that weren't sin, that led him really close to sin, and then he committed some small sins that led to big sins with big ramifications. Right? David should have been at war. That wasn't sin, but that was a, not a godly choice. As king, in his role, he should have gone. He saw Bathsheba bathing. That's not sin, but then he inquired about her. That's not sin either, but that's a bad mistake. And then he said, you know, let's just have a chat. That's not sin, 
But that's a bad mistake. Do you see how he's going down this slippery slope that leads to sin? And then he commits adultery. And from there, he pulls Uriah back. He tries to deceive him, tempt him. He commits murder. He lies. All of these is a slippery slope of sin. We need to be vigilant, again, because that could be any of us. There's a dozen decisions he could have made differently before he committed a single sin. And then a dozen decisions he could have made before it led to a worse situation. None of us wake up saying, today I want to sin. But I'm sure for you and me, there are a dozen decisions we can make before we commit that small sin. And there are a dozen decisions we make before that becomes a bigger thing. Right? Are there decisions you can make that could be more godly? Are there small sins in your life that you're allowing that just make you comfortable with that level of sin that would lead to something else? Right? We need to make godly decisions, step back from it, and be vigilant. So in our heads, know the corruption of sin. In our hearts, be desperate for Jesus. Cling to him, and in our hands, what we do, be vigilant against sin. Or else, this could be any of us. But in contrast to this scandalous sin, we find God's scandalous grace. And this is my second and my last point. You know, how should we treat a person like David, like Bathsheba? How should we see, how should we see a relationship like that? You know, like, if I'm honest... Like, if David was a kind of person that I knew and Bathsheba was a person I knew, I think instinctively, like, just in my heart, there'd be so much judgment, so much condemnation. Like, how, how could you? Right? You're meant to be, like, the king. You're meant to be a godly person. I think my view of them might be affected forever, unless I really fought it. Just to forever doubt them, maybe cut my friendship with them, and never wish any happiness for them, right, if I'm, if I'm just honest, right? If any happiness came into their lives, like they won the lottery, I'd be like, they don't deserve that, right? If anything good came out of the relationship, I'd be like, they don't deserve that, right? For forever condemn them in my heart. And maybe that's how you'd think. That's how you'd think about and treat someone like that. And if God was real, and God is much more holier than we are, and hates sin way more than we do, surely God would do the same thing. And yet the beautiful message of Jesus and what he's done for us is that God doesn't treat us that way. Right? There is grace for even people like David and Bathsheba. You see, the first thing that God does is that he forgives their sin. God forgives their sin. In chapter 12, the prophet Nathan, he confronts David and Bathsheba with what they've done. He tells this story, um, and David's like, whoa, that, that's bad. That person who did that wrong should be punished fourfold, right? They should be punished. And Nathan's like, that's you. And he's like, oh. right? It clicks for him, and he understands the sin he's committed, which is crazy because you'd think you'd know you did bad. But that's what sin does, right? It clouds our view and it doesn't feel as bad as it is until it's exposed. And in that moment, David's sin is exposed and he realizes just how far he fell. And in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned 
against the Lord. David repents and he confesses, I realize what I've done. I've wronged God. No, David, too late, mate. Too late, you've already committed the crime. You've already committed adultery. You've broken up that marriage. You've killed the husband and a bunch of other people on the way. You've gone too far, right? Wrong. Because look at how Nathan replies. The Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. David just murdered a bunch of people. He deserves to die. But God says, but you will not die. Is that fair? I don't know if that's what you're thinking. I'm like, is that fair? Grace isn't about being fair. Grace is about giving you what you don't deserve. Now, there's still consequences to the sin. The son that Bathsheba has conceived will die. There will be anger and hatred and violence in the family of David for the rest of his life. All of these are consequences of sin. Sin always has consequences. But in the things that matter most, David is let go free. His relationship with God will not change. His position as God's child and God's king will not change. And his life on earth and for eternity will not be taken away from him. He will not die and he will live forever with God in eternity in paradise along with us. Grace and forgiveness to someone like him and Bathsheba. Not only does God forgive their sin, God redeems their relationship. Maybe more shocking than what we see in the Old Testament is when we come to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's how she's described. She's not even, we don't even hear her name. She's the wife of Uriah. It's like a cold reminder of how this relationship began with scandal. Just in case you forgot, she was the wife of Uriah. Just in case you forgot, Uriah, the one that David murdered, that's her. But this uncomfortable description only emphasizes God's grace, God's kindness, God's forgiveness, God's redemption. Because she is right here in Matthew chapter 1 as a part of the lineage, the family tree that God will use to birth the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, through David and the wife of Uriah. Now here's the thing. David had a lot of other wives, which is a sin, and I won't explain that. But he had a lot of other wives. And God could have used any of those other relationships to birth the Savior of the world. Right? But he chose the most scandalous, sin-stained relationship. And he says, that one. I want to use that relationship to produce the Savior. To prove and emphasize how gracious he is how there are no limits to his redemption, how there is no one who is too far gone, too bad to be welcomed into his arms. As long as they truly repent and believe in Jesus, everyone can find forgiveness in him. Who would have ever thought that this relationship, David and Bathsheba, would ever bring about any good? But God blesses them, and he works through them to bring about the Savior of the world.
So here's the greatest scandal in this story. The greatest scandal is not that David and Bathsheba sinned. The greatest scandal is that God forgave their sin. That he forgave them and he redeemed them and he would work through them. The greatest scandal is that God would redeem them through Jesus. Right? The story of Jesus, right? Christmas was yesterday. It's a scandalous story. It's a story where God would come into the world and be born as a baby. He'd put on the flesh. I will put up an Instagram post if you read it. Something like the infinite became finite. The spiritual became temporal. Right? God, who was up in heaven, he came to earth. He put on the flesh. He who had no limits was limited. And he became a man. And then he went to the cross. And he died like a common criminal. With all of the world abandoning him, turning their backs on him, all of heaven abandoning him and turning their back on him. And he, the perfect one, took on the weight of our sin. And the father looked at him as if he saw you. And all of the wrong that you've done. He looked at Jesus as if he saw David and Bathsheba, as if Jesus committed adultery and murder and poured out his anger on Jesus. And Jesus took it all. He took our sin. He took our punishment. He took our death so that we don't have to. And then he rose from the dead to show that he really is victorious. He really has paid the price. He really has defeated our death. And now he's in heaven to return one day to bring us back to his kingdom. That is a scandalous story of how God saves. And that is how he forgives David and Bathsheba. And that is how he forgives you and I. Daniel said this a few weeks ago, just to paraphrase it. Jesus came from broken people like this because he came for broken people like this. Right? The reason why people like David and Bathsheba are in the family tree of Jesus is to show Jesus came for people like that. Jesus is able to do this because he's the king that David should have been but failed to be. The perfect king protects his people, leads them to godliness, helps them, serves them. David did none of that in this story. Jesus does all of that. Jesus is the better king because he didn't stay in the comfort of his home while his people were out in the battlefield. Jesus stepped right into the forefront of the battlefield, earth. And he fought our fight for us. He's the better king. He's the better king who has claimed victory in the most important war. Not a war of swords and shields, but a spiritual battle against our sin, and he has won. Jesus is the better king because he did not seek his own selfish desires like David did, but he laid himself down. He died to himself, and he went to the cross for our sake. Jesus is the better king. David, he, he stained a purifying Bathsheba. Right? He corrupted a purifying Bathsheba. But Jesus... He purified a corrupted people, right? He did what David didn't. And lastly, Jesus is a better king because whereas David put Uriah to death to cover up his own sin, Jesus put himself to death to cover up our sin. 
David killed others for himself, but Jesus killed himself for others. He is the better king. He's our king. And if you trust in him, he'll save you, protect you, forgive you, and he'll give you entrance into his kingdom. And that is a story of David and Bathsheba. A story of scandalous sin, but really a story of God's scandalous grace. And just how much God forgives. Just how much God loves. And just how much God redeems. It's a great reminder today of Christmas. And the extent that God would go to to save a broken world. As I close, I just want to say two things. I hope first that this might comfort you. That this story might bring some of us who feel the weight of our sin, it will bring us comfort. Now, King David reminds us that even the best of us can fail. Even the best of us can fail. But then King Jesus reminds us that even the worst of us can be forgiven and redeemed. And so I hope this might comfort you today. Especially if you're sitting here and you don't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're kind of new to church. Maybe you left the church and you're just giving it another go. You know, at Kingsway, we're not perfect. I hope we never pretend to be perfect. We are people, you know, we're here not because we've got things figured out. We're here because we haven't got things figured out. Because we're not perfect and we need Jesus. And so we gather together to find Jesus and try to love him and live his way. And we're trying to do that together. And if you know that you are broken, this is the place for you. And I hope you can stick around and find Jesus Repent and turn to him. But the second thing is, I hope this challenges you as well. Especially if you say you're a Christian here and you've received this forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ. You know, we are called to give this to other people. To extend forgiveness and grace to the people in our lives that seem the worst. That seem too far gone. The people that we instinctively judge that we might want to break friendships with, that we might extend grace to them as well. Because there but for the grace of God go I. That could be me. I could have done that. But because of Jesus, his grace and his protection, I haven't stumbled that way yet. And they need the grace of Jesus as well. And so as you look at people like that, pray for them. Don't condemn them. And ask that God would show Jesus to them as well. You know, the gospel pulls us in, it pushes us out. Right? You've heard me say that maybe. The gospel pulls us in, it invites us. You belong here no matter what you've done. That's what the gospel does. That's comfort. But then he challenges us and pushes us out to go, to go and extend grace to others, to go and talk about Jesus to your friends, to go and pray for those who don't yet know him. Right, I hope you might be comforted and challenged today. So let's close our eyes and let's pray. I don't know where you are and what you need, but I just want you to do business with God as we wind up this year, as we finish it off. As you look back on this year, I don't know if you have a list of you know, regrets, things you wish you could have done better. Maybe you've wronged people. You've wronged God. Maybe you need comfort. May the gospel comfort you. This message of God's grace comfort you today. 
find him, speak to him, know that you are forgiven. Or maybe what you need is challenge. You know, in this year, we've become so isolated. We've become so self-centered. I think some of us, we need to be challenged to look out at those around us who don't yet know the message of Jesus. And we need to be praying for them. We need to be diligent in, in doing whatever we can for those people to find the forgiveness that we have found. Don't judge, but to pray for them and intercede them. And so comfort or challenge, let's just pray and let's speak to God at this time. Let's pray.